0: From the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 15, starting with verse 11. Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. I'm sorry, I should ask you to stand. Thank you. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to the father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the young son He was lost and is found. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. and I'm gonna move things around a little, if that's okay. When the music finished and David said, "Well, will now hear from the word, my son leaned forward and said, Dad, is that you? I think he thinks that I'm so old, I'm not sure when I'm supposed to be up here. (laughs) Um, I don't do this a lot, but we love this church. I just have to tell you, we um, came here, and uh, I don't think we knew anybody. I'd met Preston, but y'all have made us feel like sacrament people really quickly, and we're grateful to be that. And on top of that, Willow is here. That's great. <laughs> That's, Will is our honored guest this morning. Um, yeah, we, we love being here, and uh, we're grateful to, for that. I'm also very appreciative for, of Preston's trust to, for this part of worship uh, today. I'm, I'm glad if this was going to happen, it would happen on a weekend like this. It feels like we're just kind of circling the wagons in a smaller place. Oh, the phone is for time, by the way, to time myself to make sure I don't go over. But um, I, I feel like what I'll be doing today is telling a few stories, um, more than preaching a sermon, um, and, and the scriptures will, are the clue to where we're going. We're, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, all three of those scriptures in one way or another, but if you would, join me in prayer first, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in, okay? God, I'm grateful that you are a good father. So many people have harsh harsh fathers in their life stories, and it can be challenging for them to think of you positively in that way. I believe when we back up and look at a broader view that all of us can struggle with clarity about what it looks like for you to be our father. Thank you for these stories, for their meaning beyond the stories themselves, and for what it can mean for those among us who among us who are willing to believe, even if mixed with unbelief, that your idea of being father to us can be what it was intended to be. Thank you for hearing us, and please hear us while we sit for. Please let us hear you while we sit for a few moments uh, in your word. Amen. Um, I have a little bit of ADD, and. Uh, I can struggle a little bit to pay attention, but um, one of the places I don't have a lot of problem with that is here when Preston is preaching. Preston has this fierce passion for the Word and for helping us understand truth and live in it and walk in it and live it into the lives of other people, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, It's not uncommon throughout the week that I will think of things that Preston said, and they they become like morsels to just chew on through the week. And uh, when he asked me to do this, and being somebody who usually sits in a room with one person, I just kind of went to where I am right now. And uh, these three passages happen to be where I am. And if you recall, Preston referred to 2 Corinthians last week when he was talking about the wiles of the devil. He acknowledged that's kind of an old phrase, but 2 Corinthians 10 talks about the um, Paul starts defending his ministry, and then he goes into talking about um, what we call spiritual warfare. So that happened last week when Preston mentioned uh, also our identity. Um, When he talked about our identity uh, as individuals reminding us that our identity is not found in things, it's not found in jobs or talents or accomplishments, those kinds of things. My, wandered, my mind did wander for a few minutes, but it went to a good place. Uh, and, and I've chewed on that all week. When he talked about identity, I remembered sitting, as we'd say, where I grew up, in spitting distance from Brennan Manning when he said one of the most important things that I think I will ever hear. Now, parenthetically, if, if you don't know Brennan Manning, it, it's okay, but you, You missed a rich soul. Um, Brennan Manning uh, was uh, an ex-Marine. And I think even as an ex-Marine, he wouldn't mind if I called him a, a sweet man if for no other reason than he was one. He wrote prolifically and tirelessly of the unconditional love of God. No matter what his book title was, the point he wanted to get around to was God loves you and he likes you and God is very happy to be your Abba. And that's not a word we use a lot in church, but Abba is a great biblical word that just refers to an an intimate form of father. As you know, it's a Hebrew word to just refer to dad or daddy or papa, something very intimate. Uh, So Brennan wanted everyone to feel and to trust the love that God the Father has for them. And he often said that the greatest work that we have to do is to accept the acceptance that we already have in Christ, which means because of Christ. We have acceptance with the Father already because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Jesus invades our space with his approval of us and we respond to what we understand about him and his presence at the core of our beings. And then we grow in that understanding. Christ, having given us his righteousness, righteousness, then shows us off to the Father, who doesn't see our unrighteous acts. He sees Christ's righteous nature in us and accepts us to the full. And that never changes. Brennan was a priest. I am going to move on from Brennan, but I want you to hear these things about his message. Brennan was a priest. Um, He also got married, which, as you know, is not common among priests, which made the church say to him that he couldn't be a priest anymore. He was also referred to sometimes as a heretic because of some really bold and courageous uh, messages that he preached about some uncomfortable topics. And Brennan was an alcoholic or as he was prone to say somewhat irreverently for the more traditional people in his audiences, that he was an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. <laughs> Brendan was a man who, whose painful early years caught up with him inconveniently, and he would seek quick relief in alcohol. And true to the ways of any of us who can be riddled with shame, Brendan would, by his own admission, lie to cover up his failures. But his failures never caused him to give up on the truth of the big picture, and he preached it with laser focus. Uh, I read a blogger um, who gets Brennan. He understands what Brennan is trying to say, and he said this, and I think this is very true. As I see it, Brennan got the core element of the gospel, the grace of God, right on the money. We can have the most pristine, well-formulated understanding of the Bible and still miss God's unfathomable grace. We can have all the right answers and give that, to give to people in an apologetics discussion, but if we do not experience the answers that we give, then it's simply an academic, intellectual discussion with no life-changing power. I often say that Brennan... Helped raise me in the faith. I came to Christ later in my life, and I began reading. and Brennan was one of those men who spoke into my life. I didn't know him personally. In fact, the first time I ever saw him in person, I was too starstruck to go up and introduce myself because he was the guy who was reading all of it, writing all of these books. But he and several authors spoke into my life in such a way that they raised me in my faith. They were lodestars to a wandering, questioning, sometimes spiraling younger version of me that had no center, no anchor, no sense of self, no sense of value. Some days, some seasons of my life, gratefully fewer over time, can feel as though I haven't gotten too far from that younger self. The enemy of our soul hates the peace and the joy that God has provided us in himself. So that's why what Brennan said at that retreat, uh, as he does around the world, or did around the world, was so profoundly important to me. He said this, your primary identity is not male or female, mother or father, son or daughter, clergy or layperson, blue-collar worker or white-collar worker, your primary identity is not an attorney at law, it's not physician, it's not dentist. Your primary identity is that you're Abba's child. That's how he knows you. That's how he relates to you in this moment. And then he said, I can only stutter and stammer about the life-changing nature of the Abba experience freedom from fear of death, freedom from the fear that I might betray Jesus by my own malice, and freedom from the fear of life. God used Brennan Manning to plant the truth about my identity deeply in me, that I'm a child of the Father, Abba's child, and and that by the will and grace of God himself. Now, by Abba experience, Brennan was referring to the transformation that begins to overtake us as we learn what it means to be a child of God and what being a child of God looks like to us as sinners adopted into God's family. By God himself who wanted to be more than the authority figure, he wanted to be Abba. The Abba experience is described beautifully in the story of the prodigal son. So I just want to revisit a few of those verses for a few minutes. Uh, Early in Luke 15, uh, or the particular passage about the prodigal son, um, there's this reference about the son asking the father for his inheritance. And it seems like this is just passed over quickly and capriciously. The son asks, the father gives. But be very clear about the fact that this was a profound insult. To ask for your father's inheritance and leave was a profound insult in that time, in that culture but the father uh, acquiesced to his wishes. Uh, This brought no doubt deep pain and humiliation to his father. Later, after things aren't working out quite the way the son hoped they would work out, uh, it says he came to his senses or he came to himself which is an interesting phrase that we use so commonly, sometimes we don't, it's one of those we don't necessarily stop to think exactly what that means, that he came to himself. Um, How do you suppose it happened that he came to himself? Uh, We may reason that a pigsty will do that for you, but how did he end up there with the pigs? I'm not asking about the decisions and the motivations. Those are already revealed in the story. I'm asking how he got there in the sense of all that lies behind the decisions and the motivations. Coming to one's senses or coming to oneself is something Brennan would call an Abba encounter. And I agree with him. All the time represented by the telling of the younger son's story. There's another story going on that we should never miss, and and I don't mean the older brother. There was a father back home aching for the son he loved. We hear just three verses down in the story that the father saw his son from a long distance away, and I can imagine full color. This father, maybe daily, maybe hourly, standing and just scanning the horizon, hoping, to see his son coming home. You and I can be prodigals, and our father is waiting, watching, and ready to celebrate. I believe that God orchestrates circumstances that will heighten our understanding of the eye-opening grace of our Abba. I do believe that God will orchestrate circumstances that will get our attention, that will bring us to ourselves, bring us to our senses. There's another uh, place just below that where you you see the son becoming aware that uh, things are not going so well, and so he begins imagining going home and talking to his father, and he gets, I think he gets a little nervous, I'm not sure, but he prepares this speech, father, I have not been a good son to you. Father, I have done this. I don't deserve to be treated like. And he plans out this speech. Uh, Here's this son of father feeding pigs better food than he was eating. And he decides to go home and he prepares and rehearses this apology. He was preparing himself for what seemed like inevitable judgment, not because of his father's harshness, but out of his current shame. Shame skews the truth away from what is true about God and can be, and it can be incredibly convincing. Shame skews us away from the truth about God and it can be incredibly convincing. So his father sees him and it says that his father saw him and felt compassion and ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. One of the many ways we fathers or parents pass on our blessing to our children is in the way we often unashamedly kiss our children on the head. The act conveys more, more than its simplicity might suggest. So I find it interesting and important that one Impressive theologian who had studied this passage in great detail and at great lengths suggests a more accurate translation would convey that the father felt his compassion, ran to his son, embraced him, and couldn't stop kissing him. He says that it implies that he just simply couldn't stop kissing him. Uh, several things I'd like for you to notice. Notice that the father's eyes were trained on his son. Seeing him from a distance, he didn't wait for his son to come to him, he broke into full run to get to his son. Notice that the father felt compassion. The one person hurt and humiliated by the son's actions was the only person who felt compassion and forgiveness is rightly assumed as a given in this picture. It reminds me of the woman caught in adultery who found herself in the middle of a circle of men, ready to throw stones at her, uh, ready to uh, put her to death. Jesus, after writing something in the dirt, which everyone speculates about, brilliantly encouraged the man in the circle who had no sin to commence the stoning And after they all walked away dropping their stones in the path, the woman was left face to face with the only person in the group who had the right and the authority to condemn her. But he didn't. He said, go and don't sin like this again. It was as if Jesus wanted this woman to know that sinning is not becoming a daughter of his Abba, her Abba. And he did it without shaming her. And the last thing I want you to notice about that particular passage is that this rehearsed apology was interrupted by the father. He didn't even get through it before his father started instructing him or instructing his servants that to bring these adornments of honor, this robe, this ring, these shoes, go kill the fatted calf. Apologies aren't in demand by people who've already forgiven. Apologies, no doubt, can help heal both sides of a relationship. But one wasn't necessary for the father to make the decision to want to show off his son to his neighbors, so he threw a party. Um, later, uh, just to mention this, the older son uh, Uh, is a part of the story, and, and we make much of the older son. But let me just point out briefly that we learn from his older brother's struggle. His anger hindered his path to forgiving his brother. And in his unforgiving stance, he began to recount the sin of the younger brother. He began to talk to his father and call name his brother's sins. Was he resentful? Was he jealous? Was he trying to stir up the father's ire against the younger brother? I don't know. But I know he was more focused on his father's behavior and his brother's behavior than his own. And that's rarely, if ever, a decision that reflects the beauty of our father's heart toward us. So let me take you to a second story, um, more briefly and then a closing lesson. In the end, This is a one-point message. I hope I can make that one point clear or um, I guess we're in trouble. (laughs) Maybe I'm in trouble. But it's one point I want you to hear. I want you to hear something you'll chew on through the week and let it nourish you and hopefully change you. Uh, In the Song of Songs, or the Song of Solomon as we've called it for a long time, in the second chapter, verses 10 through 14, um, we're reading about this man and this woman who are lovers, and there is no doubt that this story acknowledges the erotic nature of the beautiful love between a man and a woman. Yet, just as the New Testament refers to God as his bride, uh, the church, God refers to the church as his bride, the story is also about the Father's pure love for us. I want to quote you a slightly abbreviated version of those verses in chapter 2, but one that is true to the biblical text that was read earlier. It says, Come now, my love, my lovely one, come. For the winter is past, the snow is gone, the flower appears in the land, the season of joyful song has come, the cooing of the turtle dove is heard in our land again. Come, my love, my lovely one, come. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet. Your face is beautiful. Come, my love, my lovely one, come. Uh, I'm going to get a little embarrassingly personal um, to try to make my point for telling you this story. About 10 years ago, I attended a pastor's conference in California, and I, I went alone, I went by myself. <coughs> God was preparing me to leave a staff position that I was in at the time, in a large, high-profile church. I didn't understand that at the time. I didn't understand that preparation was happening, as I do now these years later. I was feeling useless, and that only deepened in the ensuing months. I was feeling devalued, And that was reaffirmed far too frequently for my comfort or my ego. But from all appearances, this had been the life-defining part of my career. God had given me an unthinkable kind of success there that I couldn't have imagined when I came to the job. But in this season, sitting at the pastor's conference in California, I sensed and feared a cold, dark winter, like a cat waiting to pounce on my life, to borrow loosely from Sandberg. I felt these lyrics of a Cynthia Clausen song. She sings, we can't use it if it's broken, if it's tarnished or corroded. We just have to get a new one and throw the old away. We can't use the stained or ugly, We need something bright and lovely, something shiny that will make us proud when we put it on display. That's what people say. I didn't know that our pastor would soon fall ill and die quickly. Nor did I know that our church then would move in a different disillusioning kind of direction. And I would be this person in Cynthia Clausen's song, broken, corroded, old, ugly, Before this all unfolded, I'd been privately thinking that God might be moving me in the direction of a career in which I would do more speaking, teaching, writing. But my thoughts were consumed with two things, and here's where it gets embarrassing. I'm not proud of either of these things. Just telling the truth. I've never been one of the beautiful people. I I was once 6'4" well, I'm taller than that now, but I'm just saying when I was younger, I was 6'4 at a weirdly young age and um, weighed an ungodly little amount, um, uh, oddly proportioned. I could list every part of my appearance that had been the point of someone else's ridicule of me. Um, I don't want that to make this sound trite. But let's acknowledge that boys becoming young men make much of their appearance. And it's not fun when others make much of it too, only in less affirming ways. This meaning this was not marketable. Um, It wouldn't sell well. I didn't look the part. The other preoccupation was with a statement that had bothered me for years. I have never liked hearing the sound of my own voice. I think that's a human, pretty common human experience. I just don't like hearing it. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't boost my confidence when I hear it. It doesn't sound like I think it ought to sound. I was in a seminar once when a professor asked a question, and he asked me the question, and I answered, and he looked straight at me with a long pause, and then he smiled, And in that smile, I imagined all kinds of affirming things that he was about to say about the depth and thoroughness of my answer to his question. And then he said, your voice drives me crazy. I can hardly stand to hear you talk. And then he didn't spare any of us all the details of what he didn't like about my voice, including something about the fact that I apparently speak on two different pitches at the same time. I don't know what you'd do about that, but that's where I was. That memory haunted me and robbed me of a significant portion of having any sense of being valuable to the kingdom, especially if I thought God was leading me to something that would include more talking. Uh, My kingdom value felt like a greased pig, easily evading my grasp. These are my stories, and we all have them. I'm not proud of these preoccupations, but it is where I was. It was a sledgehammer into my thought life. And then 2,000 miles from home, years later, alone at this pastor's conference and frankly feeling alone in the world, if wallowing in self-pity, a speaker walked out and began speaking From Song of Solomon, chapter 2. And I couldn't hide my weeping when he said, Come now, my love, my lovely one, come. For you, the winter is past. The snow is over and gone. The flower appears in the land. The season of joyful song has come. The cooing of turtle doves is heard in our land again. Come now, my love, my lovely one, come. Let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. For your voice is sweet and your face is beautiful. Come now, my love, my lovely one, come. That was an Abba encounter for me. 2,000 miles from home. A deep struggle I probably hadn't uh, verbalized to anyone. And God shows up as my dad and kisses me on the head. He looked past my self-pity, saw my ache, and spoke his heart into mine. Those things that I was struggling with may seem wholly unimportant to anyone else but he was talking to my pain and redefining my understanding of myself, but also redefining my understanding of him, the Abba of Jesus and the Abba of me. Through the hearing of his words, I came to my senses. Like the younger son, God is always at work to bring us to his ways, to his thoughts and to him. Let me tie this up. Last week, Preston referenced the 2nd Corinthians passage we read earlier. And in the early verses, Paul is defending his ministry, and then he begins to talk about something that we often refer to as, as I said earlier, spiritual warfare. So Paul says these things: although we live in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Since the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful. Through God, for the demolition of strongholds. This is about as descriptive a language uh, for those of us who are visual people. This is visual language. He's saying that God's power that he gives us to defeat the enemies' work against us is powerful to, it literally says, to pull down strongholds that exalt themselves up against the knowledge of God. It's like I'm sitting here, and these things exalt themselves up between me and God, and I, can't, I don't learn much about God, I don't see him. It keeps us apart. So one of the things it says is that God pulls down these arguments that exalt themselves up against knowledge of him. It gets between us and an accurate view of who he really is. Abba, Father, has made us his children. He brings us to our senses by pulling down lies that strive to prohibit our knowledge of him. He wants to reveal himself, so he gave us ways to war against strongholds to war against ineffective beliefs that do not line up with his, his perspective of us. Because our father wants us to know him and to know him intimately as Abba. If we being human know how to give good gifts to our children, as the scripture says, how much more the heavenly father gives good gifts to his children? if the essence of being Christian is becoming like Christ, and I think it is, once more I agree with my brother Brennan that somewhere in our priorities we will long to know the Father as Abba, not just the guy who has control, but the guy who wants to know us, wants to be known by us, wants to be our father, our dad. The way Jesus sought to know him. Jesus said that he only did what he heard his Abba telling him to do. The night before his crucifixion, he says to his Abba, please let this pass, but not what I want, what you want. One of the most powerful experiences that any of us can have is when expecting condemnation to receive mercy, grace, kindness, blessing. Some of the greatest change that comes into any of our lives happens when we're expecting condemnation, but we get mercy, blessing, like the younger son. We are Abba's children, sometimes faithful, sometimes prodigal ourselves. How often we expect judgment from our Father when the truth is He has run to us, He has embraced us, and He simply cannot stop kissing us. Let's pray. Be that to us, Father. Be Abba. Help us by your power to bring down strongholds, beliefs, arguments, as the scriptures say, that tell us you're somebody you're not, that describe the arguments in our minds that describe you as someone you're not. Help us to see you for who you are, It does matter that you hate sin, not sinners. You love us. You run to us, you embrace us, you bless us. Help us to know you as that, to respond to you as that, and let that infect the way we respond to other people, people who know you and people who don't. And may that advance your kingdom in ways that we will only learn about in the next world. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.